Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. Since 2010, the most listened to radio show in the nonprofit sector dedicated to helping your charity succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to fundraising success, and practical nonprofit management advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect landing point to learn from top experts around the world who provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books range from successful online fundraising to expert nonprofit management. Guests on the Nonprofit Coach are leaders in their field who share their insider tips and trade secrets in a conversational style both the experienced and novice will benefit from. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you and your organization move to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Click on the radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of the Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to this latest edition of the Nonprofit Coach. Great to have you with us uh, today. Uh, as our announcer mentioned, you can call in when we get to our page two expert to ask questions at 347-324-3080. Um, you also can email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. Um, and uh, as always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we start with page one news. Over here on page one, we have Ariel Gart. Ariel Gart is uh, with uh, 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 GuideStar uh, and uh uh, is here for the Guide Star Minute. Ariel, welcome back here to the Nonprofit Coach. Please bring us up to date with everything Guide Star. Great, thanks for having me. I have a couple of quick um, announcements to update everybody on. The first is that we recently launched the 2018 Guide Star Nonprofit Compensation Report, which is the only large scale nonprofit compensation analysis based entirely on IRS data. Um, And it's a really helpful tool for nonprofits to use to establish appropriate compensation and justify the salaries and benefits that they offer. Um, So if you want to learn more about this report, you can visit guidestar.org slash compensation um, to take a look at our landing page and get access to the report. Um, And if you want to take a deep dive into the report, you can also join us for a free webinar that we're hosting um, on our site tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, where we'll go over some of the key points and takeaways from the report. Um, so all you have to do to register is visit guidestar.org slash webinars, um, and that will get you a really great look at you know, what's happening in the analysis of the 2018 GuideStar Nonprofit Compensation Report. And then, as you all know, oh, sorry. Well, no, I was just going to say, you know, it's uh, it's important, I believe, uh, to always uh, manage from fact. Um, and one of the, the largest expenditures uh, for any nonprofit organization is, of course, uh, their salaries and benefits of, uh, of their employees. Uh, so a very important compensation report, I would think, for all of our listeners. Absolutely. And we've looked at, I believe it's over 150,000 different um, salaries and positions in the nonprofit sector I come up with this report. It does have a breakdown of different um, large versus small scale nonprofits. It has different types of um, different types of nonprofits in terms of their different NTE codes. It has location, um, male versus female. So just a lot of really great insight and the data is broken down in a bunch of different ways. That's terrific. Well, um, and an important webinar to learn how to use that data and how to analyze it for your nonprofit. Absolutely. 
Um, and, you know, the other piece that is really kind of top of mind for all of us at GuideStar right now is, you know, the giving season and giving Tuesday coming up really quickly. And so it is essential that organizations get their GuideStar nonprofit profiles in shape and ready for the giving season. And there's a huge deadline um, kind of ahead of us in that on November 11th, we are encouraging all the nonprofits that have a profile on GuideStar to get their updates made. Um, by November 11th to ensure those changes will be reflected on the more than 200 charitable websites and applications um, that we partner with like Amazon, Smile, Facebook, and Network for Good in time to appear for Giving Tuesday. So it's essential that all of oh. these nonprofits make those updates by um, November 11th to have those changes reflected on all of our partner sites. That's terrific. And if you have trouble remembering that date, November 11th, of course, that's Veterans Day. So, uh, you know, just sort of put that in your mind, have it done by Veterans Day. Yes, absolutely. And in addition to that, um, whether your nonprofit is rated by Charity Navigator or not, um, the information on an organization's profile that has earned the 2018 Gold or 2018 GuideStar Platinum Seal of Transparency before November 11th will also be reflected on Charity Navigator as well. Um, so that's for organizations of all shapes and sizes. So we've kind of set that November 11th date as the date to update in order to be reflected kind of with all of our different partners on all the different platforms. Um, so make sure that those updates are done before November 11th or by the end of November 11th. And if you need help yep. with your profile, um, we are offering a free webinar to kind of help get your profile updated for Giving Tuesday. Um, and that will take place on Thursday, November 1st at 2 p.m. Eastern time. So again, to register for any of our free webinars, you can just go to guidestar.org slash webinars. Now, Ariel, uh, th this now forgive me if I've got this wrong, but this sounds like a new partnership um, where you're sharing that information uh, also uh, over on uh, a Charity Navigator as well. Um, because in the past, that those GuideStar and Charity Navigator have not always shared the same ratings. Yes, and so what's happening is that on a organization's kind of listing on Charity Navigator, they are actually including whether they have a gold or platinum seal. So oh, okay. if you so earn if you're a platinum not seal, on Charity, yeah. Okay, so if you're not yes. listed on Charity Navigator, you still won't be listed. But if you are listed, then mm -hmm. they will note the fact that you have status on GuideStar. Yes, and we've kind of had this okay. partnership going for, I want to say, the last eight or so months where if your organization that's on Charity Navigator achieves a gold or platinum seal at GuideStar, that then seal emblem is included in your page on Charity Navigator. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and, that, and that's uh, that's what, I mean, one, as, you, as you probably know, one of the concerns that we've always had here on the Nonprofit Coach with Charity Navigator, while it provides, you know, an important additional voice uh, for some charities, they choose not to cover some very important, some very large charities. Uh, that's their own editorial decision, um, but it leaves, I believe, uh, you know, some folks who are not as familiar with the nonprofit sector, um, if a charity is not listed, they then wonder, well, what's wrong with that charity? And, of course, there might not be anything wrong with that charity. It's just the editorial decisions of Charity Navigator not to include some charities. Um, so that, that's unfortunate for those charities and not much they can do about that, uh, whereas GuideStar does provide um, all charities and the opportunity for all charities to provide updated factual information, and that's why we really promote GuideStar uh, in a very big way. Which we appreciate very, very much. Yeah. Well, thank you. Any other I, – I, I think it is important to have that connection. I just wish we could get Charity Navigator to provide uh, full information on all charities, whether they rate those charities or not. Um, I think it, it does create – uh, a confusion for donors when a uh, charity is not listed uh, on their uh, on their site. Uh, anyway, other updates from uh, from GuideStar. I think this this deadline of November 11th is extremely extremely important, and we want to do everything that we can to urge all of our listeners uh, to make sure they update their information on November uh, on GuideStar before November 11th. That's all I've got for you. Just remember November 11th, and if you want to come to any of our webinars, just go to guidestar.org/webinars. 
Thank you uh, very much, Ariel. As always, very, very informative and important, timely uh, information, which is why we invite you here on Age One News uh, for the Nonprofit Coach. So, Ariel Gart from GuideStar, thank you for being our guest here on the Nonprofit Coach. That means it's time uh, for Page Two Expert. Our page two expert today is Bob Penna, uh, who is no stranger here to the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, he has been on the Nonprofit Coach in the past uh, with his prior book, The Nonprofit Outcomes Toolbox, uh, that was awarded the very prestigious 2012 uh, AFP Skystone Partners Research Prize. Uh, very important uh, 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 accolade for any book in the nonprofit uh, sector. Uh, Bob is a graduate of Fordham University. Uh, he holds a PhD in political science from Boston University. Um, his new book that we'll be discussing today, uh, Braided Threads, a historical overview of the American nonprofit sector, has also been nominated uh, for the Skystone Partners Research Prize. So we certainly uh, wish him every success there. By way of background, uh, before we bring Bob in, the United States today supports the strongest, most varied nonprofit sector in the world, an economic force of about $2 trillion, responsible for 5.4% of the nation's GDP. Uh, that's in 2014, so most likely grown since then, accounting that year for 10.3% uh, of the country's private sector workforce. Uh, so let's not uh, lose sight of the fact that the nonprofit sector uh, in the United States is a very uh, strong part of our, uh, our national economic um, uh, fabric uh, for this country. Um, and uh, today it's my pleasure to welcome back here to the nonprofit coach, Bob Penna. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Bob, a very important book, a, a excellent uh, writer, um, uh, not the least of which noted by your earlier um, accolades uh, as winning that 2012 Skystone Partners Research Prize. We hope that uh, uh, you may win again and uh, we'll be able to celebrate that uh, uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach as you have uh, been uh, nominated. Um, I wanted to sort of start off today um, with uh, a quote from Michael Crichton, the you know, uh, well-known author. Um, he says, if you don't know history, then you don't know anything. You are a leaf that doesn't know it is part of a tree. And I share that because I think, to me, that's sort of the, the essence of this book that you're, you've uh, kindly agreed to come on and present to us today uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach Braided Threads, Historical Overview of the non American Nonprofit Sector. I think anyone who is involved in the nonprofit sector, certainly anyone who is in management, anyone who is fundraising or is in development, uh, of the nonprofit sector um, must know, appreciate, and understand the historical background and, and as you present the overview of the American nonprofit sector to know where they are and to for them to know themselves um, what kind of leaf they are and uh, uh, where they fit on that important tree of philanthropy um, in the United States. So by way of background, Sort of, you know, weigh in on on that quote and and uh, share with us, um, you know, why braided threads. Well, uh, I would say to address the quote, it's important for us to know how we got to where we are today. Um, you mentioned a few facts in terms of how uh, large and uh, economically important the sector is. Well, that was not always the case. For example. Uh, when you look at the multiplicity of uh, nonprofits and the many types of nonprofits in the United States, that too was not always the case. So I think it's important to understand how we got to where we are uh, because those twists and turns in the road, uh, those times when the sector ricocheted perhaps off of a uh, uh, a historical event, uh, could it be a, you know, a war, a depression, uh, all of these things had their impacts. Uh, it's important to understand 
as I said, how we got to where we are, because the fact is we were not always what we are today, and understanding the true origins, understanding how we developed, uh, Lester Solomon calls it the resilient sector, and I think that that, uh, that is a word that very, very well describes the sector because it has evolved, it has changed, and it has uh, uh, responded to both events, trends, changes in culture, changes in law. And so, once again, as I said, uh, uh, I, I think it's important to understand how we became what we are today and not just presume that things always were as we see them now. Or that they'll stay as they are. Certainly there are changes um, in the, the sector as we speak. But, but let's, take a, let's take a step back um, because we do want to make sure that our listeners today benefit uh, from the richness of your new book. Um, let's go back to where you believe the roots of the uh, American nonprofit sector lie. The roots of the American nonprofit sector, first off, go back in certain aspects, which we perhaps can get into a, a bit later, literally go back to the 15 and 1600s. There were important things that happened then that uh, contributed to what we inherited um, uh, and, and, and then took and developed. But if you want to speak of purely American experience, it is a historical fact that as soon as Americans, uh, particularly in the north, in the northeast, uh, started organizing their towns and their villages, they started forming associations. As early as the 1830s, Alexis de Tocqueville, who wrote his uh, famous Democracy in America, was commenting about how Americans organized for every purpose under the sun. In fact, he has a very interesting quote. He says, uh, where in, uh, uh, in Great Britain, in England, you will find a man of stature at the head of or leading uh, a movement or an effort, or where you will find in France the government doing that, in America you will find an association. So even as early as 1834, uh, this was evident and it was part of the, uh, of the fabric of uh, the, the early American society. And, and, and why, why do you believe that, that um, because much of the American roots uh, come from uh, the UK, certainly the colonies, why did a different approach to charity um, spring up in the United States um, that, as to Tocqueville says, you, won't, you would not at that time find uh, in the UK? Well, I'm, a couple of reasons. Number one was their royal system, their, their class system. We did not have those things. Uh, the other thing is that because of, in many, many cases, the isolation of early settlements, the government structures didn't exist. The, you think, for example, of some of the great composers, uh, of Bach, uh, Mozart, uh, 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 Beethoven. They had sponsors. These were very often people of wealth. They were people of title. Uh, some were, many were royalty. But that structure did not exist in early America. And people had to rely upon themselves. Uh, and one of the ways they did it was by organizing to get things done. Uh, some of them were civil. Uh, some of them were social, but uh, this was a strain that, again, particularly in the Northeast, uh, was very, very deeply rooted, and uh, which came to be Bob, we um, lost that last sentence. You seem to uh, break up a little bit. Can uh, can you try I'm, that again? I'm, I'm sorry. What, what, I, what I said, I'm sorry, uh, what I said was that not having the structures that in Europe uh, would have fostered certain kinds of things in the United States because of the isolation of many, many uh, communities, people had to rely upon themselves and therefore they organized to get things done in a way that Europe had never seen before. Mm -hmm. Did that come across? So, uh, yeah, that came across. Nope, very, very clear. Uh, thank you for, for restating that. Um, so, so we have uh, 
you know, the, the, the basic uh, routes that come over, um, but it's not a royal system. Um, and so uh, uh, the community themselves are creating uh, organizations. Bring us to the sort of what you view as the next uh, very important historical um, turning point from, from sort of the, the founding of uh, these community organizations where uh, what de Tocqueville finds is that, you know, leaders of the community will be involved in these kinds of activities, views that as very different from the UK. Um, where, where do we go next for the next significant turning point in the American nonprofit sector from a historical perspective? The next significant thing that happened was a very important court case, and again, this was in the very early 1800s, that involved uh, Dartmouth University. There were a number of things that were involved in that case, but for the nonprofit sector, what became a, a, a cornerstone, if you will, of the future edifice that we built was establishing that nonprofit organizations, and of course they weren't called that back then, that is an appellation that only uh, uh, came into uh, use in the uh, early 20th century, codified in 1954, but what we would call nonprofit-type organizations. Uh, it established their independence from government in the sense that even if the government would operate charter, even if they were incorporated uh, Bob, under... Bob, you just... Yes. You broke up just a little bit again. Um, so you said even if the government... Even if the government had uh, provided the charter or had the, the organization was incorporated, and back then uh, the whole idea of incorporation was relatively new, but even if it had been incorporated under uh, state law, moreover, even if state money went to it in some fashion, it still was independent of government control. This was a crucial, crucial uh, step for nonprofits because effectively what the courts said was that it is the board of the of the nonprofit the uh, the organ the uh, leadership of the nonprofit that gets to decide what that nonprofit will do even if government money is being used the government could withhold its money if it wanted to but the government could not tell non these these entities uh, be it a school because those were nonprofit if other other sort of incorporated association organization could not tell them what to do. This independence was crucial to the further advancement in the United States of the structure we have today. Is that is that the birth, is that case the birth of the third sector? Um, because it, it made it very clear that the that nonprofit organizations are not an extension of government, even though they they are formed uh, and 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 registered with government. Uh, they they may may have a charter from government, but they are by the very nature of this um, court case, uh, separate, distinct, and independent. I'm, I'm not gonna. I, I don't know if I would go as far as saying it is the birth, but it was certainly uh, the uh, the maturation. It certainly was the nonprofit sector moving out of mom and dad's house and saying, "I'm on my own." Uh, it okay. certainly was the 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 first and perhaps most important uh, uh, step towards independence. I mean, clearly we've heard the term the independent sector. Well, uh, this is where that independence began. Okay. Okay. So it is it is the birth of the independent sector. Um, is this, yes. Uh, you know, okay. make it very clear that that it is independent and uh, and distinct. So from uh, from a historical perspective, so we're you know we're we're now you know we've come from the UK. We're creating our own brand, our own approach to community organizing, nonprofit organizations. Uh, as you said, you know, uh, bring it forward to uh, the 1800s, where now uh, the courts get involved and say that uh, and and sort of forever. Uh, uh, imprint on these charitable organizations that they are independent um, bodies. What happens next that's significant in the, the historical... The uh, I would say the next most significant thing that happened was the shift. There were several important shifts 
in the uh, uh, in the development of the sector, and the move away from charity and towards philanthropy was uh, one of the seminal moments uh, in the history. Now, when people hear the term philanthropy today, they either think immediately of the Gilded Age barons who started philanthropies, the Carnegies, uh, and such like that. They think of large foundations that give away money, and that is the use of the term philanthropy today. However, the root of the word, the true meaning of the word originally, was a care for mankind, as distinct from charity. If you look at the roots of the two words, our current word charity came from the Latin careris, which meant love or tenderness, whereas uh, philanthropy uh, really was uh, from, came from the Greek, and what it meant was sort of an affection for mankind. The distinction was that charity up to then had tended to be, say, retail, whereas early philanthropy tried to go wholesale. Rather than being concerned with alleviating need, early philanthropy looked to go to the root causes of that need, the concept being that if we address the need of today, we're merely providing a Band-Aid. Whereas if we can get to the root causes, we can perhaps uh, uh, change, the, change the situation, make it better. This was a very, very important shift because, number one, it began the true organization with a capital O of the charitable sector, whereas in many, many cases, even though it had been done uh, through associations, many, many of them church-related, uh, now it became much more, you would almost say, corporate. Uh, a lot of the structures that we are familiar with today, uh, boards of directors, for example, the use of professionals, uh, the reliance upon professionals, the idea that what today you would call data uh, matters, uh, tr you know, factual information, all of these had their roots in the shift away from charity and towards philanthropy, let us say philanthropy with a small p, uh, to distinguish it from what most people think of today as the great philanthropies and philanthropic efforts. So that was a very, very important uh, change. And uh, again, it was in the 1800s, and it also contributed, obviously, to where we are today. It, it did, but but do you believe, do you think that it's um, a a distinction that is important, but is often lost in today's uh, philanthropic uh, marketplace, if you will, and that you know charity and philanthropy are in in often cases are used interchangeably. But as you've pointed out from from the root of these words, um, they are quite different and distinct. Um, and do you think that the public finds it confusing when there is no distinction? I think that the public um, is. I don't think the public is concerned with the, with the distinction as much, but I think that for those of us within the sector, um, we should recognize the fact that there was this distinction and part of the professionalization that we see today and the specialization we see today. Also, the concept that we are not merely trying to, to, to meet needs. The other thing that I think does confuse people is the fact that we use the word charity to refer to uh, a whole wide swath of organizations, many of which have nothing to do with what people traditionally think of as charity. So, as right. you well know, uh, all of the organizations in the 501c3 category are considered to be charities, even though it might be a, uh, uh, a farm for uh, retired racehorses, or it might be a park, or a, you know, it might be a, a, a symphony. All of these are considered under today's law to be charities. Whereas, and there's, there are a number of people, Robert Reich, for example, the former uh, secretary under, I believe it was the Clinton administration, he does not believe that uh, these other organizations that do not address direct human need uh, 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 
helping the poor, helping the disadvantages, etc., should be considered charities at all. So there are those who still think this distinction is important. Uh, to your point, though, in terms of uh, does the public understand, I think the public is not as educated as it ought to be. Uh, but the, the terms we use in, in, in the law does lend to this confusion. Mm-hmm. Well, there are other countries around the world that do draw more of a distinction, um, even from a charitable deduction uh, point of view, uh, from you know, uh, yep. organizations that are philanthropic and therefore maybe tax-exempt, uh, as opposed to those that are charitable that can offer a tax deduction. Um, and here in the United States, we, we do sort of blend and meld those together, and the two franchises of being tax-exempt and providing a tax uh, deduction, a tax receipt, um, in the U.S. do tend to uh, – the expectation is, is that they're blended, that, they're, that they are one and the same. And, and what you're saying is, you know, rightfully – uh, you know, whichever side of the of the coin you want to be on, rightfully there is a distinction and one that has probably been lost. Well, the, this, again, you you mentioned before, uh, uh, you know, the, the historical roots and you referred to uh, the, United, the United Kingdom. Uh, one of the most uh, impactful things that happened uh, in the history of of our sector goes back to 1601. Uh, Queen Elizabeth I passed something I believe was called the Statute of Charitable Uses. And it was very, very interesting because when she codified uh, this, she included things that today would be considered civic works as well as charitable works. So if you go back, and it's, it's actually in the book, I think I, I uh, replicated the entire wording of, of the, uh, the opening of that, uh, that statute, such things as contributing to causeways, uh, uh, the uh, ransom money for captives, uh, things such as uh, supporting scholars, supporting uh, academics, these were not theretofore considered to be charity because charity, in, in the old sense that Europe was accustomed to, charity was help for the poor. And here she was in 1601 saying that things that contribute to the public good can also be considered charity. And when you think about it, and you look at today's 501c3 uh, uh, category, which does include everything from uh, uh, battered women's shelters, orphanages, zoos, symphonies, uh, there's a vast array that fall under that 501c3 umbrella. Mm -hmm. That's how we got there. That is the root of how we got there. So, so that's that's a historical reference that did come over from the UK uh, in terms of um, blending that distinction. Whereas some countries uh, have maintained that uh, that distinction. Do you, do you think that there there is you know so you know looking at the historical timeline? I want to continue on that timeline so we make sure that we cover all of it. But sort of fast forward to today. Again, I ask the question. Do you believe that it's significant to today's philanthropic marketplace that essentially uh, we never had that distinction or that distinction, you know, going back to Queen Elizabeth I coming over to the United States, um, that, that we don't see charity simply as helping those in need, but that we view it in more of a, a philanthropic perspective that it can include a lot of public good public works, um, uh, things that, that might not be in a traditional sense viewed as charity. I, yes, I, I believe that, uh, uh, if I understand the, the question correctly, I believe that the way we have it right now uh, is probably more beneficial than to separate out, number one, those things that certain people would consider to be uh, pure and traditional charities. I think that, that would be Number one, much more confusing. Secondly, the American public, in its giving, uh, and as Giving USA points out, you know, year after year, we are an incredibly, incredibly uh, generous people, and we do give to a very wide array of organizations. But in a way, this is in keeping with our democratic, uh, uh, might say, egalitarian approach to things. In other words, there is no separate standard 
uh, or separate benefit for giving to, say, Catholic charities as opposed to giving to a farm for retired greyhounds. In other words, if you mm-hmm. choose, if you are so moved to give to the greyhound farm, well, you get the same tax benefit in a way uh, as somebody who gave to the United Jewish Appeal or to Catholic Charities. Um, I think that that is a better way to do it. I think it's less confusing for the public. And nobody has to sit there and play judge and jury as to which organizations ought to be in pile A or in silo B. So mm-hmm. if that answers your question, yes, I do think... Yeah, it does. It does. We have I think it goes back to... Uh, and that's I, I actually where where I, I was hoping that you might take that argument, um, because it, it does seem uh, to match the American way of doing things in that the distinction, if there is one, is left up to the individual as opposed to government imposing a distinction. And, and perhaps that seems natural to us because that is historically how our philanthropic sector has evolved. Um, but you seem to also be stepping, you know, sort of out of the historian perspective and looking at it from a public policy perspective that perhaps it's healthy to leave that distinction in the hands of the individual making the contribution. Well, again, when you, if you just look at the number of, of, of categories for which the IRS uh, allows deductions, uh, the number of issue, issue areas, so to speak, uh, cause areas, it, it, it's incredibly broad, and I believe, personally believe that uh, uh, having a choice is better than having no choice, and I don't really want somebody else making the choice for me. If I choose to give to uh, uh, you know, a butterfly sanctuary, I should be able to do that without anybody telling me that that's not really charity or that I don't deserve uh, a deduction. I, I think that that kind of parsing and uh, distinction-making would not be good for the sector, would not be good for our body politic, and I certainly think it would lessen in many ways the cement that holds our communities together because in many, many ways the, the nonprofit sector in the United States really is in many fashions, in many places, the glue that helps hold communities together, bring communities together, and I like the fact that people have a choice. I'd like to have the choice. Uh, Bob Penna um, is our guest here on The Nonprofit Coach. We're going to take a very quick break, and when we come back, uh, Bob is going to bring us to the next um, historical turning point uh, for the American nonprofit sector as we continue uh, to learn this historic overview uh, from his new book, Braided Threads, and we will be right back. Have you ever wished you could take back an email you sent to the wrong person? Or have that nagging feeling that your confidential message was forwarded without your consent? Do you sometimes email sensitive data even though you know most email is insecure? We all have, because we're busy. And because in the world of email, there are no takebacks. Until now. Introducing Virtru, the simple way to send and receive secure email with confidence. Virtru is easy to install and use, and it works with your favorite email programs like Gmail, Outlook, Yahoo, MacMail, and more. When you hit the Send Secure button, your email is encrypted before it leaves your computer or smartphone. And even better, you can revoke a message at any time. You decide whether a message can be forwarded by recipients. You can track where your message is forwarded, and more. Download Virtue today and start sharing with confidence. Because everyone deserves digital privacy and security without hassle. Grab your calendar and make sure that you mark next Tuesday for uh, the Nonprofit Coach right back here at 12 noon Eastern when Penelope Burke uh, will be back with us and she will be sharing the very latest uh, from the Burke Donor Research Report. Uh, Join us here next week here on the Nonprofit Coach. And don't forget that if you have Amazon Alexa at home, uh, you can now simply say, hey, Alexa, Play Nonprofit Coach on TuneIn, uh, and Alexa will begin playing this show after after the show. The first up will be uh, Bob Penna's show. And then you can just say, next, next, 
next, and it will play the entire library of hundreds of nonprofit coach radio shows over the eight years that we have been here live for you on the nonprofit coach. So don't forget, uh, you can now listen to our entire uh, archives of the nonprofit coach on your Amazon uh, Alexa uh, Echo at home. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here live with Bob Penna. Uh, and his new book, Braided Threads, a historical overview of the American nonprofit sector. And, Bob, before we uh, went on uh, break, uh, you had uh, brought us up to uh, the 1800s, um, sharing with us the significant turning points uh, of the American nonprofit sector. Where do you take us next? The next thing I'm going to, I think, if, again, if you want to look at key, key points, the next one, we'd be jump out of the 1800s and into the 1900s. I would say the next big move was the shift from relief to services. And this came about primarily as a result of the Great Depression. Um, when the Depression hit, uh, the precursor of United Way, and many people don't know this, but United Way grew out of what we used to call community chest. Today, people think of community chess merely as a space and a card and a monopoly game. But there was a time when community chess was very, very important in, uh, in communities across the country. And virtually any sizable community in the United States had a community chess. And this drew from uh, personal donations. They were very, very uh, uh, big and very important and highly supported workplace drives. In fact, very often within a community, different companies would be, the employees of different companies would be competing with one another to see who could raise the most money. When the Depression hit, it was community chest that people turned to first. But community chest in those days was largely relief. It was financial relief for people who had fallen on hard times, irrespective of how those hard times came about. Well, clearly when the Depression first happened and so many people were suddenly out of work, they turned to community chest. Well, community chest tried, and uh, people tried, and they tried to have drives to meet the need, but clearly no one knew or recognized when it began how impactful the Great Depression was going to be. And ultimately, as we know, government had to step in. Um, and under FDR, uh, a number of initiatives uh, began, but Harry Hopkins was put in charge of the money. And Harry Hopkins believed that government, particularly state and local government, ought to be stepping into this, this void, into this, uh, into this situation. So one of the decisions that Harry Hopkins made was that, again, the term was not used in those days, but today what we would call nonprofits in those days, they were called voluntary associations. These voluntary associations were not eligible for government money such as was coming out of Washington in the various relief programs. Well, this did two things. Number one, uh, it cut them off from the flow of what was going on, uh, and it kind of forced them to shift gears because, number one, uh, the government was not allowing them to partake of whatever relief monies were available. But number two, Many of these organizations came to realize that maybe relief was better placed in the government's hands. This then begged the question of, well, now what do we do? And what they shifted to was what we today recognize as services. Um, after the Depression, the move to services, and particularly after World War II, the move to services became more and more and more pronounced within the field. And many of the, we use the term, human service organizations, uh, if you look at them today and what they do, even if they didn't exist back then, if they came into being after this period, they provide services. This was not something traditionally they had done. Traditionally, those that were involved in, quote, classic charity, 
were in the relief business. They got out of that business. And during mm -hmm. the 50s, what they found was that the American public liked having access to these various services, many of them family-oriented, uh, that were provided now by what we call the nonprofit sector. So that was the second very, very important shift. Is that is that sort of the, if you will, kind of the professionalizing of the nonprofit sector uh, into providing services as opposed to, I don't know, sort of handouts? No, the pro the professionalization did begin in the 1800s with that shift, as I said, from charity to philanthropy. There were professionals even then. Interestingly enough, uh, given your background, one of the earliest professions that became codified and recognized was the professional fundraiser. Uh, but beyond that, there was a move, let us say, okay, we all have an image of, uh, of the era if you remember the movie Gangs of New York, you know the five points thing. Right, right. Yeah. We all we all we all have this image of you know those urban slums. Well, the early efforts done by the let's call them the charity people were uh, there was a move called the friend the friendly visitors, and the friendly visitors would come in and basically but in a way they would lecture the people they were visiting on how to be more middle class, on how to have more middle class type values. Well, the professionals, those who were in the philanthropic part of the, of, of the effort, small p again, they said, this is silly. You're not really changing anything. Let us instead look at really why we have the problems of alcohol abuse, domestic violence, uh, uh, spousal abuse, uh, abandoned children. Going in as a friendly visitor and lecturing these people really doesn't help. So the professionalization you refer to really, really began uh, in, in, in the 1800s with that movement. In terms of the services, however, um, that were being provided, even back then the philanthropists didn't have, the early philanthropists did not have an eye towards the services that we are familiar with today. And as you are well aware, across the sector, everything from uh, uh, counseling to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, substance abuse uh, uh, services, there's, there's a wide array of services. In fact, that leads us to the next big leap, which came uh, uh, with the Great Society and certainly has gone into today, is the idea that our government provides funding for many services that are directly provided in other countries by the government, whereas here they are provided very often by nonprofits who are getting government money. Are you there? Hello? I'm here, yes. So okay. um, in, in – yeah, I'm, I'm here. Don't worry. <laughs> um, and so in, in that, that shift to services – uh, right. for for the, the the nonprofit sector that advanced uh, it in the minds of the public as well um, in terms of what's government and and what's uh, nonprofit organization well what what happened was uh, the when I say when the shift the shift very interestingly was originally focused primarily on the middle class and one of the reasons was the middle class could afford to pay for it. So even though these were nonprofit organizations, they were charging in many cases for their services, and they were directed at the middle class because the middle class could pay for it. However, as you are well aware, uh, LBJ and the Great Society looked to alleviate poverty. And there were, again, this was the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement. There were a lot of things churning. And you'll recall... Uh, the, the, the movement whereby uh, people wanted better service. I mean, we, we had the term now, we're very familiar with it, underserved areas. And very often these were the poor communities, minority communities. They wanted better services. And the government uh, was ready to provide the money, but in some cases didn't have the expertise, didn't have the cultural awareness. And so these services, even though the government was paying for them, were provided in many, many cases and more and more as time went on by nonprofits. So today you have a situation where the nonprofit sector is very, very greatly 
dependent upon government money. All you need to do is look at the impact the last recession had on the nonprofit sector. It wasn't that people stopped giving, and it wasn't even that corporations were giving less. The big uh, uh, spigot that got turned off was government money. And it it was government money because as, as governments realized that this recession was going to lower their tax receipts, they started cutting back. And again, not to name any names, but I was personally involved with a countywide uh, program, and suddenly everything stopped. All contracts were canceled because the county executive had said, "We're going to be getting less money from the state capital, and we've got to, we can't we can't spend any money we're not going to have." If right. you think about right. the impact that the recession had on the nonprofit sector, it gives you a clue of how dependent the sector has become on government money in in, in 2018. Mm-hmm. So while back in the 1800s it became, you know, sort of, you know, etched in stone, etched in law that they were independent, they now become dependent. Um, Bob, we we have uh, less than 10 minutes, and I want to uh, finish the journey of the American nonprofit sector, bring us up uh, to present day, and make sure that my listeners know how to reach you. So you use that time, but if you can, you know, bring us up to uh, current day so that we can finish this journey. I think I think there are three things that people should be aware of. Number one is the importance of government money. That is, that, is, that is crucial. But beyond that, there are two things going on in the sector that I think people should be aware of. Number one is its incredible growth. Uh, at this point, there are uh, the government estimates. <laughs> Lester Salomon points out that we really don't know how many nonprofits are actually out there. Uh, but the point of the matter is that the sector has grown exponentially. Uh, in the book, there is a chart that shows its growth. We are adding some 50,000 new nonprofits per year uh, to, to in, in the United States. The question is, can this growth continue? Secondly, should it continue uh, unchecked in any way? Uh, because sooner or later, you're going to have a situation where you having more nonprofits effectively competing for the same dollars. There's only so much money in the pot. The pie can only be cut so many ways. So this is a very important thing, I think, that uh, the sector itself has to be aware of and that the, uh, the, uh, the community that supports these entities should be aware of, that it is growing exponentially. The other interesting thing that's happening is the demographic change. Um, I'm 66 years old. I guess I'm a boomer. Uh, my my mother's still alive. Uh, she's 91. She's a traditional. Then you have Gen X and etc. What we're seeing is that this youngest generation, the one everybody likes to make fun of, the millennials. Um, and uh, <clears throat> for uh, complete disclosure, I have a millennial daughter, so I have to be careful what I say. <laughs> their patterns, of, their patterns of giving, of cause allegiance, etc., are much, much, much different. Now think about it. You mentioned uh, your earlier guest was from GuideStar. Uh, you mentioned Charity Navigator, which you may recall uh, uh, I worked for for, for a time. Both yes, of these yes. organizations exist to help create the informed donor. And part of the idea here is you should know what you're giving to and where you're giving. However, think about what we have now with the instantaneous ability for people to get a text message and respond to it emotionally on their phone irrespective of where they are, irrespective of what they're doing. This changes the paradigm. There was a time, and I'm old enough to remember, when you would get something in the mail, in your mailbox, and maybe you threw it away, maybe you opened it, maybe you considered it for a while. You might not necessarily have been as informed as you should be, but it was not an instantaneous reaction. Today, more and more, whether it's the crawl along the bottom of the, uh, of the NFL game uh, from the Red Cross, saying text 123 to ABC, or whether it's instant messages on your phone, the opportunity for immediate impulse giving is growing. I'm not so sure that's a good thing, because I think what it, what it does is it, lend, it, it pulls farther away from the informed donor model that most of us agree we ought to have, and much more towards the instantaneous decision. So those are the trends that I think people ought to be aware of, and uh, should know about and think about. And this is, these are the things we ought to be talking about as a sector. 
Well, and one of my concerns um, is uh, certainly uh, the movement towards uh, crowdfunding, which I don't have any problem with crowdfunding or technology. As you know, I was a founder of the eFilanthropy Foundation. But my, my concern is that in that speed or in that emotional moment um, is where is the validation of the underlying charity? Where is the validation of the, um, uh, the charitable, the deductibility of, of that contribution? And I think this is where there is confusion on the part of, of the public in terms of something that is charitable, something that is tax deductible, something that is tax exempt. Um, and, the, and, and each of those are a distinction that is real in America today uh, and one that is often lost with most nonprofits. Um, you know, one, one of my biggest concerns um, today is, is you know, the, the tremendous success of, of sites like GoFundMe, which is wonderful right. um, and, and, and can help a lot of people. <laughs> But there, it is not tax deductible, and not everyone no, not. knows that because many of those pages talk about it being charitable. Um, but there is also no validation. Let's say, you know, help me support grandma who's got cancer and whatever. There's no validation that grandma has cancer, that grandma exists. What there is is right. someone who has been right. able to pull at your heartstrings using that platform, um, and, and it, it could be fraud, might not be fraud, um, is certainly not deductible, might be charitable. Um, and these distinctions are important because um, it only takes a little bit of fraud um, to start tearing away at the underlying uh, trust that the American public has for the nonprofit sector that then could dramatically change um, the historical overview of the modern American nonprofit sector. Well, Ted, in your comment just there, you have you you opened the door to two entirely uh, uh, two additional shows, one on the tugging your heartstrings thing, uh, which we could have quite a discussion about, and the second one is the question of fraud. Uh, both of those uh, are are very broad subjects, and uh, uh, I'd love to come back and talk to you about well, either of Bob, them. Well, Bob, here's the good news. Our, our, our producer, who we, we all love, uh, Diane Peach, is in the green room. She's taking notes. We want to have you back. We want to have these discussions uh, because they do matter, and I think you're a, a, an excellent person to help us sort of divine these issues um, because there does need to be historical uh, perspective brought into uh, these modern issues. Just because they're new, just because they're online, does not make them bad um, or does not mean that they should be discarded. But what it does mean from my perspective is that there are ethical imperatives here that the American public should be aware of um, in terms of how people uh, can kind of bend the, the arc of charity um, to their benefit, particularly if they're earning a fee off from the, the site. Um, and, and that's my that's where my concern comes in. Yes, so, yeah, um, Bob, we've got we've got exactly two minutes left. Um, yes. So please um, make sure that my my uh, listeners um, know how to reach you and just wrap this whole thing up for us. Sort of bring it all together, braided threads, a historical overview of the American nonprofit sector. And, and Bob, I can't thank you enough for being here. Well, uh, both uh, the uh, nonprofit outcomes toolbox, which you mentioned before. Uh, and uh, Braided Threads each have a website. Uh, one is uh, outcomestoolbox.com, the other is braidedthreads.com. Both of those have uh, links whereby listeners, if they chose to, can get in touch with me directly. That's probably the easiest thing to, to do. Uh, in terms of wrapping it up, and I see we have one minute and 42 seconds, uh, all I want to say is that, again, I believe that knowing how we got to where we are is imperative to inform the conversation about where we're going to go from here. If you assume that things were always the way they are now, you're less prepared, I believe, to make the uh, fully informed decisions about where we ought to be going. The essential question, Ted, is what is the place, what should be the place of the nonprofit sector in American society? We have such questions as should the tax deductibility continue? Which organizations should have it? These are questions that are being debated. The idea of pilots, the payments in lieu of taxes, should that take hold? Do communities really have a right to ask for that? These are very, very important questions. And if we don't know how we got to where we are today, we're less prepared, I feel, than we ought to be 
to make the right decisions about where we ought to be going. And that's why Bob, I think I couldn't. the book is important, and I hope people buy it. And that's what I was just going to say. Is, uh, Bob, I could not agree with you more, and I think as I started off uh, saying today that it's important to know the history, know where you fit in the nonprofit sector if you are part of the nonprofit sector so that you can properly represent uh, the sector that you work in. Uh, Bob Penna, thank you for being our, my guest here on The Nonprofit Coach. And don't forget, everyone, we'll be right back here next week um, with uh, uh, an update uh, from the Burke Charity Report. You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach.